This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day to day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Weekend is taking a little break. So for the next two weeks, the team is picking out their favorite pieces from the last few months, just in case you miss them. Coming up, columnist Eva Wiseman chats to comedian and activist Joe Lysett on comedy, consumer activism, and queer communities. Comedian Hannah Gadsby unpicks the myths and personal struggles surrounding autism spectrum disorder. And finally, journalist and filmmaker Michael Segalov reviews Netflix's recent LGBTQ plus coming of age rom-com series, Heartstopper. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Before we jump in, a quick warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, he used to tweet Boris Johnson after PMQs as if he was his best girlfriend, and he has channeled his anger over scandals and injustices into jolly but subversive stunts, which have led to him becoming a national treasure in waiting. Joe Lysett is the go-to guy for getting up corporate noses. Eva Wiseman interviewed him back in April and found there's nothing he likes more than breaking a few rules to get to the truth. Read by Jason Dunn. One Monday in March 2020, Joe Lysett got a call inviting him to go on live TV to explain why he'd recently changed his name by deed poll to Hugo Boss. Long story short, he'd done it to challenge the brand's heavy-handed use of cease and desist letters and it was a typically Lysettian stunt, Robin Hooding the rich with humour and a small amount of rage. It was one of his rare days off when he wasn't filming a Channel 4 show or on a stand-up tour, which meant that when he got the call, Lysett was doing his unofficial weekend job, caring for a friend who was dying of bowel cancer. I said, they want me on the Victoria Derbyshire programme in an hour, and he was sat next to me in bed, like, well, off you go then. He loved it. All the carnage I create. So his friend would have loved what happened two years later. I go for a swim with my mum once a week, he says, taking a delicate swig of coffee, 
and she normally takes a bit longer to come out. So while I was waiting, I posted a made-up Sue Gray report on Twitter. I found the Cabinet Office logo and put it together as a little image on my phone. It was the end of January 2022, and Partygate was raging. Which was why it wasn't a huge surprise when he got a message from someone who works in Parliament to say it had been read as a serious leak, that MPs were visibly panicking. Among the findings on Lysett's document were the revelation that one of Johnson's staff was referred to as Twatterall Flow, and they played a game called Pass the Arsehole. He tells me the story with glee, in full and considered paragraphs, holding eye contact. One of the things I both loved and hated about my friend was that he'd always stay at a party after everyone else had gone, whereas I love going home. So when he was told he had days to live, he defied all of it and just kept going. Until, of course, he didn't. The day after Lysett's Sue Gray report made headlines, he tweeted again. I write comedy sometimes as a way of anger, he began. He was angry, he said, because his friend had died in lockdown. And I wasn't there because I was following the rules. And we had a tiny insufficient funeral because we were following the rules. And I drove his kids away from that funeral back to Birmingham without any sort of wake because we were following the rules. And it felt unnatural and cruel and almost silly. But we did it because we followed the rules. He ended quietly. You might wonder how it feels to have been described in the papers as having caused these people chaos and mayhem and mass panic because of a few jokes. Let me be clear. It feels absolutely fucking fantastic. It was one of those moments when a flag was stuck in the wet sand of the pandemic, an anger perfectly articulated that resonated first across the internet and then across the country. He only wishes his friend could have seen it. He would have been thrilled at the chaos. I'm very proud of what I wrote, he says, and it feels like a good use for my comedy. Because yes, while Joe Lysett is very keen to make people laugh, he also wants his work to have an impact, and he does this largely by being lovely. There's another comic he adores, quite an anti-like figure, really smiley, and then she calls you a cunt, <laughs> and you love it. I think that sort of thing is quite powerful. You can get away with so much when you're nice. He chuckles delightfully. Recently he made a documentary about greenwashing, pointing out that the $900 million Shell claims to spend on renewables is dwarfed by the $17.8 billion of their total investments. When he visited the Shell headquarters to confront them, our director found it so fascinating. Having worked on lots of other films where people are in your face, with a banner maybe, he saw that security didn't really know how to deal with someone who's not being aggressive, who's just being very lovely, telling them you like their jacket. It's disarming, and so I run with that as much as possible. Along with the Hugo Boss stunt, 
three series of his consumer watchdog show, Joe Lysett's Got Your Back, have seen him challenge Uber Eats' hygiene policies by creating a takeaway located in an old skip and flash mob a bank into refunding a defrauded customer. Rather than trying to fix the world, Lysett attempts to massage its smaller bureaucratic aches. Got Your Back, he offers, is a show that celebrates the paper cuts of life. The Lyset I meet today is gently but noticeably different from the Lyset on TV. Similarly charming, joyfully charismatic, but more masculine, he suggests. After lockdown, I watched some of my old videos and I just didn't recognise myself at all. Who is this person that's flailing about, being camp and ridiculous? It felt like another life that only exists on stage and drunk in gay clubs. Before I started performing, I was always very irritating and obnoxious at dinner parties. Comedy is a good outlet for that. I can get the praise that I clearly need from that section of my life. And then the rest of the time I sort of enjoy being a bloke with a cat, doing my gardening. On Instagram, he has a fabulous sideline in gardening content, much of which involves labelling his camellias variations on slag. He is insistent that he's not a political comedian. I'm not. You are, I say. I'm not. You are. Am I? He uses his shows as a sharpened tickling stick, embarrassing corporations into behaving better. He speaks vividly and regularly online about LGBTQ rights. Though less obviously political, the matter-of-fact way he discusses his own mental health is striking. For the last year of his friend's life, he couldn't eat or drink, and later Lysett realised it was this association that led him to getting panic attacks, where he was convinced he was going to be sick. And so I started to sort of close myself off from the world, which was obviously the wrong thing to do, because what I've since discovered through therapy is to overcome those things, you have to do tons of it, and see that you're okay. He grimaces. I had an outbreak just before going on live TV. I thought I was going to be sick on the rain, which actually would have been amazing. Ten minutes of stand-up writing itself. He tweets Boris Johnson after PMQs as if he's his best girlfriend, and he channels his anger into jolly but subversive stunts, which have led him to becoming a national treasure in waiting. I do worry. There's genocide happening all over the shop, and I'm worried about somebody who's been attacked in a gay village in Birmingham. Is my anger proportional here? But I suppose I'm cross because it's my community. And at the moment, I can see how the same mistakes and judgments are being made that I've seen before. I feel like we're going backwards, and so that does make me cross. In what way? Trans rights, for instance. The way trans people are talked about in the British media is completely different to America. It's really important to talk about. I thrive and I exist and have rights because people before me fought for them. It's my duty to do the same for the trans and non-binary community. I'm not a woman, so I can't comment on what it is to be a woman, but I know it's not right to treat people inhumanely. When he talks about anger, 
Sometimes it seems more like fear or grief. Stonewall, like any organisation of that size, will have made mistakes. But if you lose it, there's nothing like it. You won't see it again. And some people's lives depend on it. It feels like the attack on Stonewall is emblematic of the attack on LGBT rights at large. He's bisexual, which means, he joked to an audience, you're all at risk. How much does his queerness inform his work? I think if I wasn't queer, I'd probably be working at, he hums, Ernst and Young, doing some sort of mid-to-top-tier accountant role, probably pulling in around 100k. I'd have a very nice wife, two children, one with learning difficulties, but nothing that will hinder them too much. He looks a little wistful. Subconsciously, very early on, I knew I was not going to thrive in a corporate environment. The way I speak, let alone dress, was not encouraged. And so it's not even really about sexuality. It's about identity. It's not about who you're fucking. It's about what you want to say. And my very existence was always sort of questionable. I think the anger that I sometimes feel towards institutions is probably pent-up anger from that time. The institutions that turn you into the men that work for these institutions only serve the ones that conform, and anyone who can't do that is left behind. A few years ago, a particularly nasty school bully served him in a Tesco Express and told him how funny he was on TV. Lysett didn't quite know what to do, so he said thank you, brightly. On a signet ring Lysett wears on his left hand is the dialing code for Birmingham, his home and, arguably, his muse. He was born there in 1988, and after a decade of touring the country's comedy clubs and going viral after an 8 out of 10 Cats Does Countdown appearance, in which he recounted a battle with York Council over a parking ticket, apart from popping down to London to film the Great British Sewing Bee, or, for instance, Iceland to film Travelman, Birmingham is where he stayed. In 2019, after buying a house in King's Heath, he invited the Birmingham Lord Mayor, Yvonne Mosquito, to officially open his kitchen extension. It's just a quietly creative and brilliant place. And it's not showing off about being brilliant, it's just getting on with it. His new show is built around a stunt he's been working on for three years which began when he realised he'd paid too much for his house, but ended up as a love letter to my local community. It's the thing I've made that I'm most proud of. Why? Because at its core, the show's not about me. It's about my neighbour's goodwill. The stunt includes aliases, drag queens, estate agents and phone calls from the police. And it's kind of amazing doing the previews and watching audiences as they realise what's happening. It's beautiful to see them go, wow, people, people are good. We all needed that. A reminder that out of something as silly as me trying to get my house price up, this incredibly empowering event can happen. The new show is called More, 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 How Do You Lice It, How Do You Lice It? With previous stand-up shows titled I'm About to Lose Control and I Think Joe Lice It. And that's the way, aha, uh aha, -huh, uh -huh, Joe Lysett, 
which correctly suggest audiences dancing into the theatres, and him cheered before he's even tried to bring down the government, or told an impish story about his visit to the post office. He brings up a specific comic strip. The first square is a comic on a podcast, quietly and seriously explaining the importance of comedy as an art form, as a political tool. And the second is the same comic on stage, shouting about all the pussy he gets. I know comedy isn't high art. It's basically just men shouting shit into rooms of drunk people, he says, twinkling. But I do love it. That was I'd Never Have Made It in the Corporate World. Joe Lysett on comedy, consumer activism and queer communities. Read by Jason Dunn. Next, after almost two decades and at the cusp of retirement, comedian and consummate storyteller Hannah Gadsby shot to fame in 2017 with her show Nanette. Two Netflix specials followed, but it is only in the last three years that she's been able to put a name to her lifelong struggles behind the scenes. Earlier this year, Hannah detailed what it's like to navigate a neurotypical world with a neurodiverse mind. You don't have to be an expert to know that people with autism don't get to speak about their own experiences. Until very recently, autism has largely only been understood through the prism of the experience of parents and as a list of observations that mostly neurotypical medical professionals have made and assigned meaning to. The myths around ASD and ADHD have wasted enough of my life, so I don't really want to waste any more of my time thinking about them, much less writing them down. For a long time, I worried that I'd been misdiagnosed. It was difficult for me to believe that I wasn't entirely to blame for my life being such a painful struggle because I was so used to assuming that I was a bad person. It took me a long time to get brave enough to simply share my diagnosis. My experience did not match the popular understanding of autism, and I knew I had to become an expert in neurobiology in order to untangle the myriad of myths surrounding autism, just to beg permission to claim that piece of my identity. I was right to be cautious, because when I finally did start telling the world of my diagnosis, the dismissals came thick and fast. I was told I was too fat to be autistic. I was told I was too social to be autistic. I was told that I was too empathetic to be autistic. I was told I was too female to be autistic. I was told I wasn't autistic enough to be autistic. Nobody who refused me my diagnosis ever considered how painful it might have been for me, and it got real boring real fast. Ever since I can remember, my thoughts have been plagued with a sense that I was a little out of whack, as if belonging was beyond me. To give this feeling a story, it's as if I am an alien who has been abandoned on earth and left to muddle my way through life without a reason, a mission, or any memory of home. If you are a conspiracy theorist, this is where you might begin to wonder if I might perhaps be a lizard. I am not. Now piss off. 
I am a visual thinker. I see my thoughts. But I don't have a photographic memory, nor is my head a static gallery of sensibly collected thoughts that my brain curates into easy sense. It is not linear. It is fluid and flexible, kind of like a private Wikipedia that I'm constantly revising and editing. But instead of words, everything is written in my own ever-evolving language of hieroglyphic films filled with hyperlinks to associated and often irrelevant thoughts. I've never managed to develop a reliable system to file and separate my thoughts into individual think pieces, and so I am utterly incapable of having one thought without at least another hundred coming along for the ride. Further complicating this issue is the fact that my brain doesn't work in the realm of the abstract. I'm not capable of thinking with imagery that I haven't seen with my own eyes, which means when someone tells me a story, I will see it as something like a film that I must edit together out of all the other films sourced from my own internalised collection. Every single day I have spent on this earth, I have added countless images to my brain library. Needless to say, it is very busy in my head. If it were possible for someone to catch a glimpse of my thoughts being processed, they'd be hard-pressed to make sense out of it. I doubt they'd even believe that the tornado orgy of wingdings and gifts was anything other than gibberish. Sadly, the enthusiasm that my brain brings to the collecting of visual records is not then applied to the filing and retrieval process, and because of my inability to quickly and efficiently translate what I see into an externally communicable format, I am wired to have lots of fun and adventure in my head, while at the same time failing totally, utterly and miserably at life on the outside, and feeling profoundly alone. I believe that it is this whirl inside my brain that contributes to my inability to speak at times. To be clear, I don't identify as being non-verbal, but I often lose my verbal ability, especially if I'm overwhelmed by a lot of sensory information at the same time as I am trying to identify, process and regulate emotional distress. This is what is called selective mutism, which is a common comorbidity of ASD, but not exclusive to it. When I told mum that I was autistic, she said, yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I always knew that there was a lot going on inside you, but I just couldn't get in. You were like a tin of baked beans and my tin opener wouldn't work on you. It's a tidy metaphor, especially if you know that mum does not like baked beans. My childhood was a serendipitously effective buffer for the worst that my ASD threw at me. Small town, not a lot of change, my family unit was a ready-made social network that I didn't have to navigate cold because I was just a part of it. They looked out for me, but because we were a big family, no one really noticed if I didn't talk. I was the youngest, so no one expected me to be a leader. No one noticed when I would disappear for hours, and no one thought much of my habit of taking frequent naps in the linen press. I wasn't quirky. I was just Hannah. 
Nobody thought I was special when I memorised every single question and answer in Trivial Pursuit because I wasn't special. Everyone cheated one way or another. It was only when I stepped out of the bubble of my family that things went to shit. And oh gosh, to shit it went. For as long as I can remember, I have struggled to grasp even the most basic of life skills. In my first year of primary school, I forgot to wear underpants so many times that my family started to check me at the door every morning before I left. I assumed I'd get better at stuff as I got older, but it only got worse, and the older I got, the less amused people were by me. Footnote, I am wearing underpants today. During my adolescence, I began to find it more and more difficult to make myself understood, and that is when I developed an instinctual fault responsibility whenever I didn't understand what was going on around me, which, to be clear, was all the fucking time. This struggle persuaded me to assume that I was unlikable, and eventually I stopped thinking about the world through the lens of my own needs, and anybody who is a human knows that this is not a recipe for good times. I used to fret about fitting in at school, not because I wanted to, but because I knew I was supposed to. I was at my happiest in my own company, which I took to be an abnormality. It never occurred to me that it could be the epitome of normal behaviour for me. I was a girl, and girls were expected to be masters of the mingle, so I tried really hard to be a normal girl, but it was a fool's errand because my neurobiological situation makes it hard for me to see all the networks of undercurrent connections that drive the interactions of the more typical thinkers, which in turn makes it incredibly difficult for me to intuitively reflect peer group behaviours. So the best I could do and continue to do is observe, guesstimate and imitate, which is often referred to as masking in autistic circles. As a coping mechanism for teenage me, masking was an incredibly successful tactic. I was only bullied intermittently during my school years, but as a catalyst for growth, it worked more like castration. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, back to Hannah Gadsby. By the time I was middling my 30s, 
I was no longer living my life. I was merely coping with it, and barely. I felt as if I was a supreme annoyance and a burden to anybody I spent meaningful time with. But nobody seemed to notice that I had major depressive episodes every other year and debilitating anxiety the rest of the time. Not even me. Nobody noticed that I never made eye contact. Nobody noticed that I often spoke in a patchwork of collected phrases. It took me a long time to even spot those patterns of my own behaviour because I was too busy trying not to do the wrong thing by guessing, pretending, panicking, then either shutting or melting down. My meltdowns had always been a mystery to me, so when I was finally diagnosed, I was able to reframe the way I thought about my strange little outbursts. For a start, I became far more compassionate toward myself, which probably halved the distress of the occasions. In the scheme of my life, I have not had very many meltdowns, however. I'm more of a shutdown kind of autistic. From the outside, a shutdown looks very similar to a sulky tantrum, but it is nothing of the sort. I don't have control for a start, and I'm certainly not ruminating on any kind of emotional narrative because I have gone into fight or flight. But in my body, that translates into neither fight nor flight. I just shut down like a maxed-out power grid in the middle of a storm. Meltdowns are equally distressing, but for different reasons. The worst is knowing that I am out of control and may accidentally injure myself, or worse, someone else. Meltdowns are often conflated with panic attacks, but they are not the same beast. The biggest difference between them is that a panic attack is agitation and fear spinning on a kind of mind loop, whereas a meltdown is a maelstrom that begins in the body. Another important difference is that a panic attack will never resolve the anxieties that triggered it. Meltdowns, on the other hand, are a real spring clean. They clear the pipes and can often leave you feeling as if your body has been reset. I wish more than anything that I had known about my ASD when I was a kid, just so I could have learned how to look after my own distress instead of assuming my pain was normal and deserved. There is no one to blame, but I still grieve for the quality of life I lost because I didn't have this key piece to my human puzzle. But until someone unlocks the riddle of time travel, little me will have to flail and fail their way through the world for 30-odd years. I see a fault in the idea, put forward by neurotypical experts, that autistic people have mind blindness, which essentially suggests that we are unable to understand the inner workings of other people. I believe we all have mind blindness. Why else would we invent language? The problem is that communication skills are developed atypically in autistic people and, most often, very slowly. I have always had difficulty articulating my needs, but as I've gotten older, my language and social skills have improved a great deal. My ability to regulate, however, has not, nor have my sensory sensitivities. My eternal struggle with these distresses often gives the impression to others that I am moody, reactive and inconsistent. I say I want one thing, then moments later I will say that I need the opposite. This is not a reflection of my character, 
but rather it is a reflection of my neurobiological functioning. I am unable to intuitively understand what I am feeling, and I can often take a much longer time to process the effects of external circumstances than neurotypical thinkers. But it is they who get impatient with me, and under that pressure I feel forced to guess my needs before I've had time to process stuff in my own way, and so mistakes are made. I can be cold and not know it. I can be hungry and not know it. I can need to go to the bathroom and not know it. I can be sad and not know it. I can feel distressed and not know it. I can be unsafe and not know it. You know how when you put your hand under running water and for a brief moment you don't know if it is hot or cold? That is every minute of my life. Being perpetually potentially unsafe is a great recipe for anxiety. And, spoiler alert, anxiety is bad. Once I understood that I was always going to have difficulty with self-regulation, I stopped worrying about it. Once I'm distressed, my moods are not mine to control, but my environment is. I'm always working to remove myself from all the cycles and patterns of hostile environments, like cafes that have polished concrete floors. And I no longer search my behaviours exclusively for revelations about my character. I use my occasions of distress as ways to map the circumstances and environments I move through and look for ways I can reduce my exposure to distressing situations. I have learned how to advocate for my own experiences instead of being ashamed of my pain and confusion. I stopped worrying about what I was expected to do and worked on building an understanding of what I could do to make myself feel safe and calm. I'm not afraid of pressing pause during a television show when I feel distressed. I seek out spoiler alerts to avoid getting panicked by unexpected plot twists. I leave crowded spaces. I switch off discordant music. I wear headphones at restaurants. I openly express my hatred of the saxophone and electric guitar solos. I don't allow important emotional conversations to take place in cafes with polished concrete floors. I spend hours alone at home, rearranging my little piles of bric-a-brac because it's really fun. I only wear blue clothes because blue makes me feel calm. I listen to the same music, watch the same shows, and eat the same foods over and over again without any qualms. I find joy in my life where I once couldn't because I was too busy trying to do the right thing instead of checking in with my own needs first. I am lucky. I have the privilege to be able to protect myself, now. But it's not because I can do it on my own. I need help. There is not much about my life that is not looked after by another human, sometimes teams of them. That is the beauty of success in show business. Other people become quite keen to do all the things for you. I'm basically a middle-class white man from the 1950s. But even if I hadn't stumbled into success, I would still need a lot of help just to navigate life. It is absolute bullshit that the only way I could access the help I needed was by accidentally activating some kind of exceptional potential I didn't even know I had until I was nearly 30 years old. Please stop expecting people with autism to be exceptional. It is a basic human right 
to have average abilities. Many people who struggle to find stable employment also contend with things like intergenerational poverty and or trauma, cycles of abuse, mental illness, systemic discrimination, disability or neurological disorders. Not only are these all chronically stressful and traumatic circumstances, they have all been linked to a high incidence of impaired executive function. Welfare systems are not built to be easy for people who are anxious about using the phone or people who mix up dates. They're not designed for people who are bad at keeping time, filling out forms, or people who can't easily access all the relevant bank, residential and employment details from the past five years, if they thought to keep that information at all. Welfare systems don't accommodate for transients because welfare systems are not built to be accessible. They are built to be temples of administrative doom because, apparently, welfare is a treasure that must be protected. Can somebody please do something about that? I'm not good enough at organising to be an actual activist, but searching for the connections between the big picture and the little picture, however, is a very ASD thing to do. I'm never not cross-referencing the trees with the forests, and it can be a very exhausting way to engage, but I wouldn't change it for the world, because I believe communities need thinkers like me. That was Hannah Gadsby on her autism diagnosis. I've always been plagued by a sense that I was a little out of whack. Written and read by Hannah Gadsby. Finally, it's a sin. Sex education. Everybody's talking about Jamie. These recent productions covering stories of LGBTQ plus youth have been huge hits. They've addressed the highs, but also the mostly very lows, such as homophobia, the impact of HIV and AIDS, and the desertion of friends and family that can come with revealing your sexuality. But the coming-of-age series, Heartstopper, went against all conventions. First and foremost, it was a romance story. Could it be, writer Michael Segalov asked, that the battle for true equality has passed a crucial turning point? This article contains homophobic terms and references to suicide. Read by Walid Akhtar. Barely three minutes into the first episode of Heartstopper, Netflix's new LGBTQ plus coming-of-age rom-com series, which has been a knockout success with critics and viewers, I turned to my boyfriend, curled up next to me on the sofa. Aimed primarily at a young audience, the show is about an openly gay male sixth-former at an English comprehensive, played by 18-year-old Joe Locke, who falls in love with the school's most popular rugby player in the year above. There's no way, I declared to my partner with confidence, that this is going to end well. His love would go unrequited. We'd seen it all so many times before. The idea that the show might end as it did, with a tear-jerkingly joyful celebration of young queer love in full bloom, depicted gorgeously, seemed impossible. My own similar experiences at school, I believed, had taught me far better. The notion that television executives would commission or that British audiences would welcome a mainstream queer and adolescent happily ever after was firmly beyond the realms of possibility in my jaded millennial mind. As the Heartstopper plot unfolded, however, so too did a real-life event. By the time in episode 8 the two main characters had truly fallen for each other, teenage Blackpool FC footballer Jake Daniels had come out. 
He was the first gay male professional footballer to do so since Justin Fashnu in 1990. A week after Fashnu came out, more than three decades ago, his own brother, fellow footballer John, all but disowned him. John Fashnu, my gay brother is an outcast, read a headline in The Voice. Brian Clough, Justin's manager at Nottingham Forest, meanwhile, described his star player as a bloody puff. Fashnu tragically killed himself. Years later, John spoke about his regret over how he treated his older brother. In 2019, he and his daughter launched the Justin Fashnu Foundation to eliminate prejudice in football. Thankfully, the response to Daniel's sharing his sexuality has been the total opposite. The FA labelled him an inspiration, while England striker Harry Kane tweeted, Massive credit to you, and the way your friends, family, club and captain have supported you. In the same week came the announcement that 18-year-old transgender woman Yasmin Finney, another Heartstopper cast member, had been cast as Rose in the up-and-coming Doctor Who series. These were by no means the first and only examples of recent milestones in LGBTQ plus visibility and representation. There's the triumph of musical Everybody's Talking About Jamie, first on the West End stage, and now a feature film produced by Amazon. The runaway success of Netflix's Sex Education, which is impressively LGBTQ plus inclusive, and Russell T Davies' drama It's a Sin, about the AIDS crisis too. And yet, something about Heartstopper, Doctor Who and this news from the world of football sat a little differently. These weren't stories that centred on overcoming prejudice like countless others. Each of these three was a positive presentation of a new generation's queer experience. The angst and trauma that we've become so accustomed to witnessing taking a back seat. In Heartstopper, bigotry and prejudice are far from the primary focus and the show has proved to be so wildly popular that it has already been commissioned for series two and three. For Joe Locke, Heartstopper's breakout star, this is precisely what he saw in the script from the outset. It felt like an optimistic retelling of real life, he tells me over the phone, squeezing in a few minutes to speak midway through his A-level exams. Stories like this one will and do occur in schools today, he believes, even if some of the challenges are more easily overcome in the show than in real life. But I don't think that's a bad thing, he adds. If anything, it's wonderful. Because for so long, queer people have had to read and listen to stories of which the only thing that happens is hardship. And it's important we change that narrative. We need queer stories with happiness at the forefront too. It's a way to change realities in the real world. With recent polling showing that only 54% of Generation Z are attracted exclusively to the opposite gender, compared with 81% of boomers, Plenty of signs suggest this next generation of young LGBTQ plus people have never had it better. With these highly visible examples of queer teenagers thriving and demographic shifts showing greater ease with sexuality and gender, could it be the battle for true equality has passed a crucial turning point? Heartstopper's Truem Grammar School for Boys might well be fictional, but many schools across the country have been through radical changes recently. When I left school just over a decade ago, LGBTQ plus societies were incredibly uncommon. My secondary education began only a year after Section 28 was repealed. Legislation which banned local authorities and schools from promoting homosexuality in any form. Today, from Wolverhampton to North Wales, Brighton to Bristol, 
there are plenty of examples of educational institutions boasting a pride group. And at Impington Village College, a state secondary school with 1,300 students on the outskirts of Cambridge, spaces like this have proved invaluable for LGBTQ plus youth. When I meet a group of Impington pupils, it's immediately obvious just how far better informed and equipped they are compared to so many queer kids who came before them. During introductions, it's the students who instigate the sharing of preferred pronouns. Within minutes, one sixth former, Ada, is telling me how in heteronormative society, spaces run by and for queer people, such as their school's active gay-straight alliance, are important places for self-expression and personal growth. Each student shares reflections on their own experiences. 18-year-old Greg recounts his discomfort in his previous education setting, a faith school, while holding hands with his now boyfriend. Milo, a non-binary sixth former, was readily accepted by most corners of the school community with little second thought. I had a really positive experience of being queer when I was younger, says Amy, a final year pupil. But I never felt I had anyone to look up to outside of school. I'd avoid romance on TV or in books because there was no story I could connect with. Even though in this environment I'd been accepted, I just assumed I'd be straight when I grew older because there was no reference points. The night Heartstopper came out, Amy watched it all in one sitting. I cried so much, she says. Young, British gay people being out and happy. I hadn't seen it. It took me a long time to feel comfortable using the word lesbian to describe myself. I'd never heard it. But in the show, there were these two girls happily calling themselves lesbians and in love. It's revolutionary for younger people like me. Of course, each student still had their own barriers to acceptance. But these teenagers, having the language to describe them and a space to discuss them, is no doubt testament to a changing world. This, however, doesn't come without its own set of challenges. The safety these teens experience in the classroom, most say, feels at odds with what they think might await them in the outside world. Many millennials didn't come out at school. The prospect of doing so felt far too dangerous. Surviving the secrecy was made bearable by clinging to the idea that things could get better in later life. For these young people at least, there is a real fear that the opposite might be true. It's not always comfortable to be so informed. Digital natives, they have not been shielded from the struggles facing LGBTQ plus people in Britain. The backdrop of increasing LGBTQ plus hate crimes, a crisis in mental health of trans people and the government's continued refusal to ban traumatising conversion therapy. Talk of higher levels of LGBTQ plus homelessness came up repeatedly, as did the knowledge that their school experience wasn't necessarily the norm. A report by Just Like Us, a British LGBTQ plus youth charity, Last year found 42% of LGBTQ plus school pupils have been bullied in the past year, double the number of their non-LGBTQ plus peers. Sue Sanders, Emeritus Professor at the Harvey Milk Institute, co-chair of the charity schools Out UK and LGBTQ plus History Month co-founder, believes there are real risks in being seduced by the idea that the outlook is singularly rosy for young people. She says... LGBTQ plus children's experiences at school are a postcode lottery. What we see are some schools doing the work brilliantly, but plenty of others refuse. Too often, she says, support for LGBTQ plus pupils 
relies on the efforts of a single teacher, later collapsing without them. Others do nothing or continue to illegally tell their LGBT teachers not to come out. To this day, only around half of Britons are supportive of LGBTQ inclusive sex education in schools. Katie Slee, head of academy at Leeds United FC, sees the same contrast in the world of football. Having spent 14 years working at the club in various capacities, she has seen huge shifts in the way inclusivity at the club is implemented. At every level, players and staff have attended football versus homophobia sessions and training. And in 2018, Leeds United was the primary sponsor for the city's pride events. One of the biggest shifts has been in language, she says. I'm not having to challenge young players as much as before. Staff never use homophobic language, when at one stage they might well have done, without thinking about it. She adds, that's not consistent across every club. I know for a fact it's not. On multiple occasions, young Leeds players have reported homophobic language from opponents on the pitch to referees, who haven't always taken any action. It's a phenomenal shift, Slee says, but it's not enough. I've not known a single player at any level who has come out while playing for the club, from the juniors right up to the first team. That simply doesn't add up. Even cultural advances, Russell T Davies argues, need to be considered in their context. There's no denying much has changed since Queer as Folk, the series he wrote about three young gay men living in Manchester, was first released in 1999. When I think about writing Nathan, a teenage schoolboy coming out of the closet, it was like a lightning bolt, a meteor. It was an impossible thing to imagine on screen, he says. But I wrote it because I'd started to see it in the clubs in Manchester. That certainly feels much more normal now. In the same way, shows like Heartstopper take the dialogue further. The mentorship depicted between an out gay teacher and a gay pupil feels firmly new territory. As in sex education, young gay male characters are finally shown to foster close friendships with their heterosexual male peers. Society is also splintering, Davies says. There are examples of a marvellous gender-fluid youth, but that's certainly not universal. And in some ways, things are worse than before. Consider, for instance, the treatment of trans people. Back in 2004, Nadia Almada a trans woman won Big Brother with a whopping 74% of the popular vote. If a trans person won a reality show now, there'd be delight, but also backlash and uproar. These moments need to keep on happening. We need to keep knocking down those walls over and over again. The truth is, there's no singular stream of linear progress. Matt Cook is a professor of modern history at Birkbeck University with a focus on queer histories, He can track similar contradictions throughout the past 30 years and beyond. If we look to the 1980s and early 90s, Cook explains, there was a clear effort by gay and lesbian people to make themselves heard and visible. In the context of that upsurge of homophobia, Section 28 and the AIDS crisis, there was a fight against silence as so many were dying or having their voices sidelined. What emerged was alternative theatre, queer cinema and more queer community spaces, all created by and for queer people. These provided a lifeline and anchor for people like me coming of age, Cook says. What followed, according to Cook, was a shift in mainstream culture. Under Tony Blair's Labour government, Section 28 was scrapped, the Equalities Act introduced, the age of consent was equalised 
and out gay men and lesbians could for the first time serve in the armed forces. Along came Queer as Folk, LGBT History Month, Gay Best Friends in Sex and the City, and openly queer contestants on major shows such as Big Brother. Suddenly, Cook says, there was LGBTQ plus representation everywhere. That was tremendous for people coming out, but there's a parallel loss. Gay bars closed, communities disaggregated. In some ways, isolation felt more acute because there was a presumption that everything was fine. A decade earlier, argues Cook, it was easier for LGBTQ plus youth to articulate their struggle in the late 80s to say, I feel shit because there are endless tabloid headlines saying my life is worthless. Difficult experiences became harder to define in this later period. Lisa Power is a co-founder of Stonewall and an activist since the 1970s. She says, I'm encouraged that we've started to learn from our history. It's probably the first time we've had enough history to learn from, and that ensures we remain vigilant at times like this. There are some people who love queer people, reckons Power, others who are hate-filled. The vast majority is somewhere in the middle and quite easily swayed. Some people are shocked, she suggests, that the natural progress they presumed would come towards the sunlit uplands for queer acceptance hasn't materialised. Power knows representation matters. The fact Heartstopper can depict a blossoming young queer love story, a single male footballer feels able to share his sexuality, or a school adequately supports LGBTQ plus youth, are, of course, all worthy of celebration. They offer glimpses of a better future. And yet somehow, she believes, they also expose just how far we still have left to go. There is a struggle ahead, Power says, and it will not be easy. But there are literally more of us, and with more tools, than there have ever been before. That was Young Gay People Being Out and Happy is Revolutionary. Meet the Heartstopper Generation by Michael Segalov, read by Walid Akhtar. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's best of articles were read by Jason Dunn, Hannah Gadsby and Walid Akhtar and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers were Danielle Stevens and Max Anderson. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.